Yes, welcome to Sports Day on this Wednesday night. Adam White and Josh Jenkins with you. Plenty to get through tonight. And if you want to join in the conversation, you know what you have to do. The Harcourt's open line, one 736 736 or the Temper text machine, 0433-981116. We have got a prize to give away as well. Uh, 18 holes of golf times two for you. So it's for you and a mate with a cart. Get 18 holes of golf for two with drinks and a cart midweek for just $99 at uh, Club Mandalay. All you've got to do, visit clubmandalay.com.au or give us a call, one 736 736 on the Harcourt's open line. The temper text 0433 On the program tonight, Peter Ryan will join us, the Age Footy reporter. There's a fair bit to discuss in relation to the rule changes, maybe just the rule tinkerings. There's not too many significant things that are going to change, I think, thankfully, going into the new season. So we'll do that. We'll also chat some cricket with Dan Bredig. Plenty of cricket news going on. And uh, as Annie Marge said before, just the, I guess, the fallout from that West Indies Australia one day game last night that was finished in about five minutes. It was a bit of a setback for the West Indies after such uh, promising signs in the Test Series. I think it's also worth mentioning the fact that there was only two players from that Test match winning team in Brisbane that actually played in Canberra. Um, but not, but notwithstanding the fact that it was all a bit, uh, a bit disappointing. So Dan Braddock would join us also with news that Ricky Ponting is uh, going to be coaching in America. And also I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to catch up with Sam Harper, who was really good for Victoria in the game against South Australia over the last four days at Junction Oval in the Sheffield Shield. He got runs in both innings, including a really important uh, 36 in the second innings as a, as a Victoria chased down and what was uh, well what proved to be a fairly tricky 157 for victory. He'll be back in action again tomorrow with Victoria taking on South Australia in the uh, Marsh Cup. A big game for Victoria. If they were to win that, they're likely to play in the final. But also we want to talk to Sam Harper. It's the first time really he, he's spoken publicly and expansively about what happened in that uh, terrible incident at training when he was there for the stars, when he was rushed to hospital in an ambulance after being hit in the head for him to come back and play what he did or play, play the way he did in his first game back was quite remarkable. So looking forward to catching up with Sam. We'll have plenty of uh, Super Bowl action as well. Um, all of the sort of the build up there, we're heading across to Las Vegas to speak uh, to someone that knows all about the San Francisco 49ers. So we'll do that as well. And uh, also, we'll uh, a couple of things I want to talk to Josh Jenkins about, and to you as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to open the line straight up before Josh joins us. One three hundred seven three six seven three six. The question is, does Carlton have the best four in the competition? So the Blues have named their leadership group today. Patrick Cripps is captain, and then their leadership group of four is Jacob Wietering. Charlie Curnow and Sam Walsh, along with Patrick Cripps. Is that the best four in the competition? Is there another four that can beat that? Or is it Carlton clearly the best when it comes to the Fab Four in the competition? one 736 or the Temper Text Machine 0433-981116. As we welcome in Josh Jenkins, Josh Jenkins, does Carlton have the best four in the competition, are they the Fab Four? Well, they they're in the com. Well, they're leading the conversation. Um, 
I uh, you did post this this afternoon, and I was able to to put my uh, thoughts down on a piece of paper. You put and, your thinking um, cap on. I did. I did. Uh, it's a small cap, but I put it on. <laughs> uh, I, ca- I come up with I come up with um, a couple of clubs have got a, a I reckon a three that's better, but that's not yes, four. Yes. Yes. Um, but I've come up with probably two clubs. Two and a half at a stretch that have that have got a Fab Four that can compete with Carlton. So, um, I'm not convinced that either are better, but certainly uh, can compete. So, looking forward to having a bit of a chit chat about that, and I'm sure uh, uh, our listeners will uh, will have a view as well. And I'm sure they won't be biased toward their own team. Of course not. Of course not. So the Harcourt's open line, <clears throat> excuse me, is one three hundred seven three six seven three six. And the temper text machine, 0433-981116. Does Carlton have the best Fab Four in the competition? We think back to the early 2000s with Brisbane when they had the Fab Four in the midfield. So this is slightly different because we're talking about a leadership group. So I think when you look at a team, JJ, like Melbourne, I'm not sure you can have Clayton Oliver in your Fab Four because we're talking about leadership groups. I think he's clearly, clearly in Melbourne's best four players. But this is what we're looking for here is a, is if you had to name four leaders, and generally speaking, they're some of the best players as well. Mm. Is there a team that can beat or at least match Carlton's? one three hundred seven three six seven three six. The Harcourt's open line, the temper text machine, 0433 98 11 16. Just on the temper text, we've got a couple that have actually um, – just put in here about whether the T20 cricket matches will be on SEN. Yes, they will be. So over the course of the weekend, Australia and West Indies, you will hear all those T20 cricket matches live on SEN. What, before we go to some calls, what's your I – I need yours, JJ. Uh, well, I'll give you Brisbane. The, the, only, the only query is on the fourth member, uh, but I do know him well, so I know that he's got leadership <laughs> – Leadership capability. Uh, Brisbane Lions. So Harris Andrews. Yep. Uh, no brainer. Uh, Lockie Neal. Yep. No brainer. A man who took some amazing strides, I guess, in a maturity sense in the way he played last year, Joe Danaher. And then Ooh, okay. yep. his, his little uh, running mate, Charlie Cameron, who uh, I think, and I know because I know him, has got some great leadership uh, qualities. I'm just not sure that he's ever really wanted to sort of press them and, and push them forward. All right. So you wouldn't have Dunkley in that four or even Dane Zorko, who was captain for a long I time? Wouldn't, I wouldn't have Zorko anymore because I'm still I'm still uh, equal weighting that the, the, you've got to be at the top end of town in the way you play the game as well. So I'm, I'm putting equal weight because that's what that's why Carlton's is so uh, fabulous, for lack of a better term. Um, because they're all at the top yep. of their game, they're all at the peak of their powers, and and they are all um, a part of that and showing that leadership quality. So you know, Walsh probably to me, I don't know Sam Walsh at all, but it feels like he leads by example. And I reckon they watch Sam Walsh on a Monday when they're reviewing games, and that's the way he leads. I reckon Michael Voss says, "Well, look how hard he's running. Look at look at look at Sam Walsh when the other team's got the ball. That's the way he." Probably leads. Cripps is obvious the way he puts himself um, in and around contests and the way he is quite vocal uh, on the field. Weedering's a really smart guy. Is there a bit of a trend, Whitey, with with key backs who are 
incredibly intelligent. I'm thinking <laughs> you know, there's the Phil Davis types, those yes, guys, that's right. Paul. That's right. That's right. All right. I tend to agree with you. Okay. Let's get to Dave Rimelton. He can open the batting for us tonight on the Harcourt's open line. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. He is going to nominate Collingwood. Dave, good evening to you. Good evening, boys. How are you? Going How are well. Yeah, for yeah, me, I've got, I've got uh, Darcy Moore, yep. Jordan Degawi, Nick Dacos, but I can't decide on the fourth. I know Josh Dacos won the best and fairest in the premiership year, but you can also stick Mitchell or Pendlebury or Crisp or Hill. There's a few you can stick for four, but I'll go Josh Dacos because he won the best and fairest in the premiership year, and they're all premiership players, by the way. All right, Dave. Thank you for your call. One three hundred seven three six seven three six. So, JJ, I'm yep. going to challenge you a bit here. Who would be your okay. four for Collingwood? Well, you won't believe it. You will not believe it. You will not believe it. I actually have written here: uh, N. Dacos, J. D. G. Moore, and question mark, question mark, question mark. So I'm, I am exactly the same as Dave. I, I think they've almost got an embarrassment of riches, Collingwood. I think to go, he's now. Uh, allowed himself to be in that category. Of course, he's had his troubles across the uh, across the the past however many years. But I think last year sort of pushed him past that. I hope, fingers crossed. But um, the fourth member is probably Josh Dacos. I think. Okay. Oh, you, you see, you, you would one. put oh, you would put Jordan Degoe in that leadership category, the top four leaders at Collingwood. Um, again, oh, well, I, he's probably not in their top maybe seven or eight leaders, but he's their best player or second best player. So I think that levels him off. Um, again, though, if you want to if you want to take him out, if you want to take him out, you've still got Dacos, Dacos, Moore and Penelbury or And I think Howe, Jeremy Howe would have to be in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're certainly weighting the leadership element. I am. I, heavily, I, aren't you? I think when you do this exercise, something comes out which I think is I think it's quite um, obvious as you do it. You, you learn very quickly who the good sides are. Mm. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, like, if you look at Geelong's, for example, now I know you know the inside out, um, upside down, back to front, the, the natural leadership group there is Dangerfield, Cameron, Stewart, and Hawkins. Mm. And you straight away go, well, you know, you can kind of understand why Geelong's good. Um, mm. Melbourne, Petrarca, Graun, uh, Gorn, Viney, and then, say, Lever or May. Yep. Um, so you go, well, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty strong leadership group there. Um, GWS, I, I still put Callan Ward up there cause he's such a spiritual leader of, mm. of the giants, but then you've got Kelly Canilio and you've got Toby Green, who's the all Australian captain, um, Port Adelaide, Rosie, Butters, Boak and Wine. So you've got sort of the, the new and the old, but all pretty solid citizens and, and good leaders. I'm just reeling off teams that are very good teams, but the very good teams have got very good leaders and obvious leaders that stand out. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And there were a few teams I was able to skip straight over in a sense of you just weren't sure. There are other emerging teams. And yep. I think there's always, and this is a great topic as well, and I guess you, you do need a bit of inside information to know uh, truly, but fans who are really locked into what happens at their club know these type of guys. There's always one or two within each team that that, that show and are really strong leaders within the club. But you and I would think, really, are you yes. like, serious? There's all every team's got one or two. Marco Conrad Geelong, remember when he was in the yeah. leadership group? And everyone's going, yeah. what? 
Yep. Yep. Everyone's got one or two of those. So um, that's, that's a topic for another day, Whitey, but um, yeah, it, it is, it does make it easy when, as I said, Collingwood, you, you could put, you could honestly probably put 10 or 11 guys in that, in that fab four and, and not really bat an eyelid. That's right. And that's why they're good. And, and I think oh. this is the whole thing is that Collingwood, you have got seven or eight you could put in there. Then you go to some other clubs and you're struggling to come up with two. Mm. And and they're the clubs that are down near the bottom. So I think it's an interesting conversation. We've got a heap of uh, temper texts coming through with your suggestions. And it's really interesting actually looking through them all that a lot of them are very consistent with what we're talking about and what you guys yourselves as you're texting in are very consistent groups. So we'll get to that shortly, but we need to... Um, chat to Peter Ryan, the Age Football Reporter, who's written a really interesting article in The Age uh, today, uh, just in regards to the Braden Maynard uh, smother from last year. They've tried to change the rules or tinker with the rules so that he would get suspended if it was to happen again, but Pete's not so sure he would. Uh, Peter, welcome to Sports Day. G'day, Whitey. G'day, Josh. How are you? We're going well. Um, I read the article really, and it was really interesting, and... So rather than me explain what you wrote, you can do it yourself. It was um... <laughs> well, it is hard to explain on radio. But <laughs> it is. It is. I, I, I've compared the rule that's been rewritten to uh, uh, alleviate the fact that Maynard, you know, knocked out Angus Brasher in the qualifying final, and hopefully, oh well, not hopefully, the AFL would say that if that incident occurred again, the player would be suspended. However, if you read the judgment that the tribunal came down with when they cleared Maynard. Um, it seems that uh, he would pass the reasonable test that um, he actually did try, didn't have any alternative option and uh, that he did actually try to, um, or he had no opportunity because of the pace that he was going at to mitigate the damage that he inflicted on Brayshaw. Now, I did have a couple of caveats, which was one, that it's probably unlikely that the same incident's going to happen again. And the other component, which a couple of people at the AFL have, uh, you know, uh, in disagreeing with me, have said that um, even rewriting the rule will encourage a change of behaviour and probably puts a bit more of an onus of responsibility on a player now that they're aware of the possibility if they do leave the ground to smother. But having said all that, I stick to it that, um, uh, yeah, if the same incident, exactly the same incident happened again, then the player who did that would be cleared even under the new rule. Okay, so I'm going to ask both of you this question, JJ and Peter Ryan. Notwithstanding what you've just said, uh, were you comfortable that Braden Maynard wasn't suspended last year? Do you think, regardless of what the rules say, just based on gut feel, did you think that Maynard should have been suspended or are you comfortable that he wasn't? I'll start with you first, uh, I thought he, Sorry, I thought he was very lucky. And I, my gut feel was that he, he should have um, been penalised for it. But my also my uh, head was reading the rules. There was no yep. way he possibly could have been suspended. JJ? My, my feel pretty much all along was uh, I probably wrongly, given the position I'm in now, I, I look at the, I look at each incident as trying to, I try and put myself in the incident because it's easy because I've been in some of those situations. So I try and put myself in, in that incident and in that moment. And I, and I didn't think he should have been suspended for it. Now, I think that the AFL is on the right path, Pete, in terms of, I think they need to back in the players and 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 ask and 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 demand change of behaviour because there are many many things that we could think about and mention that used to happen that the players no longer 
because they've been told you can't do them anymore. So I think that change of behaviour, you know, so we'll see a few. We might see one or two. We might see any. But, you know, saying to players, if you jump up and, and, and try and smother a footy, then you put yourself at risk. Well, quickly... Not, not eventually, quickly the players will learn, Pete, that we can't jump to smother a footy. Otherwise, we put ourselves at risk of um, suspension. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think I accept, I accept that uh, it's the right path because no one wants to see what happened to Angus Brayshaw happen and potentially a player in Maynard's position may attack the contest differently as a result of what they've seen happen. Um, yeah, I mean, we're getting to the point where we accept that uh, it's safe as we can make the game that's better for everyone it's just the point is that the expectation from my point of view that uh, he would someone who was in that position again if it happens would naturally be suspended by the tribunal I don't think it stands up if the legal argument was run by a smart lawyer which there's plenty now involved in <laughs> yeah there are plenty um, and they are they all cost a lot um I think the how, bigger impact how, of these sorry go on now, I was just going to say, Pete, how – now, we can't put ourselves inside these meetings, but how heavily do you reckon that the weight of the, the, the concussion issues in the background, how heavily do you think that the, that weighs on the decisions that these uh, guys and girls are making at AFL HQ? Because, I mean, it would only be human nature to try and continue to, to protect the game from litigation and from what might be coming down the track. How, how much do you think – all that stuff is weighing on them when they're deciding on, you know, are we going to allow guys to jump and, um, you know, bump or, or, or smother or are we not? Well, I think it's got a huge impact in terms of their thinking. But I think what we're finding is that there are legal people involved in the AFL who have also got a strong feel for football and they're trying to walk this fine line between protecting the player and probably uh, stopping the fact that they're going to be liable for some sort of legal action down the track and also retaining elements of the game that we all love as a spectator and everyone who plays and watches the game wants it to be a contest sport that has some sort of physicality and also an element of danger to it. Um, And that's the fine line that they're trying to edge towards. And, And sometimes, as Laura Kane said yesterday after, you know, is there kind of unintended consequences she was she was saying, well, it's a, it's a really difficult game to legislate against anything that's popular, you know, that we can predict to happen because it's such a frenetic game and these sorts of things such as the Maynard thing come up and then we have to deal with them um, as they happen. But their overall intent is protect the player, keep the game exciting and hopefully from their perspective, from the organisation's perspective, put in enough... Um, groundwork now that they're not liable to legal action later down the track. I like the fact that they haven't changed the rules of, of there's mm. not too many changes uh, for this year compared to last year, because last year was such a good year of footy. And I think we're yeah, sort of absolutely. heading in the right track. So of all the things that have happened, the one that I think there's two, there's the rundown tackle, uh, but there's also the, the whistling from the bench. Where did that actually come from? This annoyance about <laughs> well, whistling from the bench. I was- I was thinking about, I spoke to a few clubs today and I was asking, who's your whistler? No one's confessed <laughs> at this point. But I reckon it was related to the broadcast um, component. There were people obviously whistling from the bench that was interfering with some of the microphones that were set up there. Um, and there's also clearly an element of umpires um, 
uh, expressing that it was causing some confusion for them, obviously given that Laura said that the umpires are the only ones with whistles. And I also think more broadly they're trying to crack down on some of the behaviour down the bench so it doesn't become like basketball where you've got coaches and officials running up and down the bench communicating with players in ways that become much more demonstrative. So I think this is a little bit of a... Well, we'll stamp out whistling as a bit of a warning shot to everyone. We're watching the behaviour on the bench and, you know, stay in your lane, basically. Um, the rundown tackle is the one that will probably have the biggest impact on the game overall this year because we don't see a lot of them, but uh, it's going to force players to actually try to be like steer wrestlers, I suppose, when they run down a player from behind and drag them back um, rather than the momentum and riding them into the ground, as we say. So I think that'll have an impact on the way players play and the safety of players. I actually think it's a really good rule. Um, it just emphasised to the players they have to take some sort of care in their technique rather than, as I said, just driving a player's head into the ground willy-nilly. Pete, I think this is the one that I think this is the one that we'll probably spend a lot of time talking and writing about because I think this yep. is the situation that we'll see where where we've got players who are going to be suspended for for a chase uh, down tackle, and it's incredibly. I mean, it's basically impossible to stop your momentum completely, isn't it? And the players that you, these guys are tackling are, you know, powerful and 95 kilos and all these sorts of things. I wonder if, I don't know whether you watch the NFL, Pete, I wonder whether it might be a similar situation that the, the pass rushers these days, they can't land on the quarterbacks. They've got to tackle them and then sort of show that they're putting their arms down on the ground and not sort of tackling and holding their arms. I wonder whether the, the, the rundown tacklers can tackle and as you are going to ground sort of, land on them but use your your own hands to, to brace your fall, therefore allowing the ball carrier to be able to brace their fall as well. I wonder if that's the best way to go about it. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I'm not a... You're an expert on NFL and I'm not at all, but um, I reckon that clubs within uh, training schedules and programs and the way that they teach players, they would be looking at situations like you've described to actually get the players to manage um, the way they tackle more safely for opponents because no club wants... A, they, they genuinely don't want to hurt their opposition. I mean, they want to fear the opposition, but they want, don't want to concuss opponents. Mm. And also, they don't want their best players suspended for something such as the tackle. So they'd be working out ways within the rules to actually manage what you're saying is really difficult, which it is, uh, which is to go at a contest with the full intent and intensity that players do while also executing something that safely brings a person to ground, that's that's really hard to do um, and takes a lot of practice and a lot of technique and sometimes just a lot of luck. And where, where it's really changed is the whole notion you tackle to hurt. That, that's yeah, now, yeah. It, that's now no longer the case, uh, whether we, whether we like it or not, that's, you just can't do that. You've got to you've got to show duty of care, otherwise you're going to find yourself watching on the sidelines. Uh, Peter, thanks that's very much. True, but, uh, but, yeah. but I reckon they do. I know, I know, and that's that's <laughs> yeah, let's face it. Yep, yeah. that's the the fine line that they're dancing. Peter, thanks very much for your time. Uh, we've got to get to a break, but uh, appreciate it. Chat. And um, yeah, if you want to hear and read all of Peter Ryan stuff, uh, you do that at the Age. Peter Ryan, their football reporter. We're about to go to a break. We're going to get to some of the. Te- te- the temper text messages. There's heaps of them talking about all the, the leadership groups, the, the top four, some agreeing with us, some not. That's okay. We'll get to all of that. And I'll just dig a little bit deeper with the rule changes with JJ. Uh, Peter Ryan, uh, thanks to Mate. $20 off for five months with Mate Internet. 
All you've got to do is use the promo code SAVE20 with Mate Internet. It is sports day for Kia. Epic has arrived. The all-electric seven-seat Kia EV9 and Macca's, the new McCrispy Bacon Deluxe, is now back at Mate. Yes, it is sports day on this Wednesday night. Adam White and Josh Jenkins with you. We'll take some calls here. We've got a little bit of a window to do that on the Harcourt's open line. one 736 736 or the temper text machine 0433981116. Sam Harper isn't too far away. Now, unsurprisingly, it's raining in Sydney and there is a <laughs> one-day game being played between Australia and South Africa in the women's game at North Sydney Oval. It's already been reduced um, to about, I think, 43 overs. And they're playing at the moment, JJ, in the rain. South Africa, five for 158 as it currently stands. So it just always rains if there's cricket on, it seems. It does. It does. And the same thing for the, uh, of course, autumn. Uh, autumn is Sydney's time to shine in the in the racing That's space right. as well. It's always heavy tracks. Always, always heavy tracks. It's unbelievable what happens it up is. there. It is. It is. Hey, just randomly, I'll ask you about Chris Alford because he's got some – he drives tonight. He's he only one away from getting to 8,000 wins, which is, is. unbelievable as a, as a driver in it harness is. racing. It is. Uh, so he finished second on a uh, favourite in the first race at Ballarat. Right, so that's what I was going to ask you, whether he won on that race. He hasn't. He's got three other drives, uh, they tell me tonight, where he's got good chances um, just sort of uh, quickly skipping through. He doesn't look like doesn't look like he's got any other favourites. So um, he might have to wait another night, but um, such is the life that he leads. He'll he'll crack that 8,000 very, very soon, which is it's a, it's a milestone that'll go pretty much unmentioned in mainstream media, won't it? But um, certainly just a testament to hard work and longevity at the top of his chosen field. Absolutely. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to whiz through some temper texts with uh, these uh, leadership groups of four. I challenged anyone to get a better leadership group than Carlton's, uh, a fab four of Cripps, Wietering, Kerno, and Walsh. There's quite a few here for Geelong, uh, and they have. there's some of our listeners that have got the same as I had, Dangerfield, Cameron, Stewart, and Hawkins. But uh, there's another one here coming through from Dean for Geelong, which is Cameron uh, and also Close. Stuart and Guthrie, that's uh, Cameron Guthrie. So some interesting ones there from Dean. Um, where's the others now? There's so many of them. Oh, yeah. Hawthorne from Dean. Uh, James Sicily, Jai Newcomb, Will Day, Dylan Moore. Okay. Shirley Collingwood has to be Mitchell and Pendlebury, both Brownlow medalists and ex-captains. More than Dacos. And then Dacos and Darcy Moore. That's from Stu. Maynard for the Pies. Um, okay, Melbourne here is Gorn, Petrarca, Viney and Lever. That's Matt from Yarraville. Uh, another one here, which is Gorn, Petrarca, Bailey Fritch and Jack Viney. No disrespect <laughs> to Bailey Fritch, but that surprised me a little bit that he'd be there ahead of some of the others, but that's what the temper text is for. Uh, another <laughs> one here, Dangerfield, Hawkins, Stewart and Cameron. So there's heaps coming through uh, for your club. And as one says here, it's pretty unlucky that Sam Doherty would miss out now in the top yeah, four at Carlton. Yeah. Just shows that leadership group is growing and Carlton's growing. Carlton's improving. They are. They are. He's a former co-captain at the peak of his powers or very, very close to still at the peak of his powers. Can I – I'm going to put you on the spot here, Whitey, because you know the game and you know the players and you know the teams. Give me Essendon's Fab Four. Now, I found this one difficult, and I think it shows to me why Essendon – 
Thank does you. struggle. Um, yep. So Merritt obviously is the captain, but I've got Merritt, McGrath, Heppel and Parrish. And there'll be a lot of people listening to that saying that's rubbish. That's not good. But I can't find strong leaders, on-field leaders at Essendon. And I think that's been the problem for Essendon for 25 years, if I'm to be truthful. I yep. think that yep. through this this barren time of no finals, Essendon hasn't had that on-field leadership that it, that you, they used to have so much of through the 80s and, and 90s and, say, early 2000s. Um, they struggle in that area. And I think Zach Merritt is a good captain, but he's also not an imposing figure on the field. And I just think that is where Essendon really struggles with on-field leadership. I think they've got a talented, a young, talented list, ta- sort of talented, almost talented, but I don't think they have a lot of leadership. So when things go wrong on the field, can they fix it themselves or do they have to wait for the coach to tell them what's going wrong at quarter time? Yeah, I love Zach Merritt. He's, I love the way he kicks the ball. I love uh, the way he plays the game. But I think there's no doubt teams who want to get on top of Essendon, you go and try and bash him up. Now, I say that in the right way, of course. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know that there'd be – we named four, and you might be able to come up with four. And Essendon fans might say Sam Draper. He's a bit of a, a spiritual – tight for them and that's fair enough but you wouldn't be able to name six or seven you'd no. be really 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 reaching at at five or six or seven so no doubt it's um as we were saying before the before the break it is it is easy to identify the clubs that are powerful uh, based on the the first four or five that you can uh, list off in terms of leadership so at the bulldogs bontempelli stands out like a beacon but who is it after them after Bontempelli, that you just automatically come up with three or four names. Well, they 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 don't. I don't even. I couldn't even tell you who who sits in there. Who who either is in there currently or has been in there very very recently. They've the dogs feel like they've got a lot of players who are well credentialed. So they might have an all Australian jumper or two, or they may have played in the twenty sixteen premiership, but don't necessarily fit the the leadership. Um, criteria, you know, McRae and even English is a pretty seems a pretty softly spoken guy. He's had a contract for 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 that plays a part as well. I don't know whether Norton's got it in him. He might. I don't know whether Eugle Hagen can 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 be a leader. They're all very very good players. Clay, Caleb Daniel, does he strike you as a leader? Bailey Dale, they just don't strike you no. as as guys who move the needle Monday to Friday. And perception's not necessarily reality, by the way, as well. So it, these are just observations from the outside. There's a temper text that has come through, 433-98-1116. Jordan Ridley, without a doubt, at Essendon. Um, Scotty from Tigerland, who knows very a lot about what goes on at Tigerland because he's from Tigerland. Uh, Nank, Grimes, Lynch, and Dusty. So obviously Richmond's leadership's changing dramatically with the the changes there over the last couple of years. Nola has come up with Alex Pierce, Caleb Sarong, Andrew Brasher, and Nat Fife. That's not too bad. That that group yeah. of four. It's not. It's not. Well, Fife's rarely out there anymore. That's the only unfortunate part. True. True. There's a few there now. There was. Was there one more? So, what did you think of Port Adelaide? Rosie Butters, Boken Wines. So you got. Uh, the, you've got that. That's I, my I, four, by the way. So that's the old and the new. Who else is there in that mix? Well, you can't have Boke in there. He's he wore the sub vest for the past seven or eight. But he's weeks. The, he he's still he's the spiritual leader though of that place. He's still the one that well, everyone maybe, looks up to. Maybe uh, maybe they need a new spiritual leader to take over. 
maybe maybe they need one or two others to to take over and take his uh to take that role from him because um you know they haven't had the success they would have wanted in in the final so yeah i think it's a great um again uh kudos to you uh for thinking it up this afternoon because it's a, it is a, it is a really it's a snapshot and we are looking from outside in but gee it does it does feel like it gives you a really nice snapshot of um of 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 how each club is tracking and and how they're looking based on their top few. Yeah, I think so too. And I think Sydney's the other one that is interesting to me because Callum Mills is now a leader on on his own. Now for such a I long like time well for such a long time Sydney didn't have that. I like yeah. one leader personally. I and I'm a bit of a traditionalist. But that's not what Sydney's done for a long time. So um I think they've got a very young list, Sydney. They've still got some leaders there, but I think you'd call them probably more emerging leaders than actual leaders. Um, but Sydney's always seen, for me, it's always seemed that Sydney's always had a lot of sort of solid citizens that, you know, uphold the bloods culture and they're all really sensible and all that sort of thing. And now Callum Mills, is, who wasn't sensible, is now the outright captain. Yeah, I'm glad he is too. I'm glad he didn't lose it um, over what was a freak injury. Um, yeah. I heard Jane having his uh, two cents worth this morning and, um, yeah, I understand the frustration, and John Longmire spoke quite well or, as well about, you know, they needed to to allow some time to, to 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 go by for them to be able to feel comfortable about Callum Mills being their man. Because I think before the incident, that everyone clearly in the club, even that even the uh, co-captains that were there last year, went to the club and said, "It's time for 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 Callum Mills to to be the standalone captain." You know, uh, they played a game down against the Cats last year and. The Swans were um, all at sea down back. They put Callum Mills back yeah. on Tom Hawkins at full back. They believe he can do absolutely yeah, anything. And he probably can. Um, and, he, and, he, and he can. So, yeah, I, I, I'm glad he is the full-time captain. I mean, I understand it's probably an element where you're thinking, oh, geez, it's frustrating what he did and it was stupid what he did. But um, it's only a one – it's a speck in time when if he's going to be the captain for the next eight years, that little incident and him missing however much of the season, it's only a small part in all of that time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're getting a, a lot of uh, feedback on uh, the fact that we, we have to have Tom Liberatore in the in the Bulldogs four. I, I've got him there. I've got Bontempelli, McRae, Liberatore, but I struggled for a fourth. Uh, and again, that's just we're just we're going around pretty yeah, quickly I, thinking I, about this. I struggled the show. too. I struggled too. But yeah, they're, the they're performance not... side of things, no worries. But yeah. pure leadership again, from our perspective, which is probably far, far from uh, where it needs to be in terms of knowing everything about these guys. But yeah, leadership. There's a little bit of uh, room to to move. And the one thing about Carlton is what they've been able to do is you've got the midfielder Cripps, you've got the defender Weetering, the forward Kerno, and then Walsh, who's obviously. Uh, a midfielder as well, but you've got it on all lines, which I think is a real sort of, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches in a sense. Um, anyway, we'll continue to feed in some uh, temper texts throughout the course of the show on 0433981116. That has been our hot topic for APCO. Skip the queue with the APCO app. With the APCO app, pay for petrol from the comfort of your car or pre-order food and drinks. But it is now time to talk some cricket with Sam Harper and it's fair to say that Sam Harper, without Sam Harper, Victoria might not have got the points against South Australia over the last four days at Junction Oval. And he joins us now on Sports Day on this Wednesday night. Sam, thanks for your time. Hey, Whitey. How are you? Go, Josh. 
we're, we're going well. Um, how nerve-wracking did it get in that chase for 157 for victory? Yeah, it did, Wadi. It was always going to be a tense little morning there. And, um, yeah, obviously Maddo batting so beautifully in that first innings when he got out uh, first ball of the day, clipping a nice one to mid on. Yeah, sent a few little shivers through the camp, but it was nice to get the win. So when you go out to bat, naturally uh, someone that likes to get after the bowling and, and really sort of take the game on, generally speaking, what was going through your mind? Was it to keep doing your th- the, the way you wanted to do it or did you have to temper the enthusiasm a little bit? What was your approach? <laughs> no, not really, Whitey. Not temper the enthusiasm too much, if anything, <laughs> probably. When, maybe it went a little bit too far the other way. But no, nah, my whole thing recently in Red Bull cricket is, yeah, just having a real confidence about the way I want to bat. And yeah, that's to be nice and positive and to take the game on. So yeah, I've made a pretty simple approach and um, yeah, I can keep a pretty simple process from there. And that is, yeah, to look to put pressure on the bowler from um, from ball one, whether that be in the first innings this week or the second innings. So yeah, it was the same yesterday. And it was nice to go out and join Campbell, who's obviously a teammate of mine at Melbourne as well. So I feel very comfortable batting with him. And yeah, it was just trying to build a partnership and it was pretty exciting. They're the sort of positions as a player on day four that you want to be in, um, especially with a good mate of mine. So yeah, it was an exciting partnership. So to have essentially the license to play your natural game, it seems to be that it's happening more and more in, in domestic cricket, even international cricket, where players are, are sort of encouraged to play their natural way. We've got this at Victoria with Matt Short and, and yourself as well. Is that something that you you talk to the coaches about to get this, the seal of approval to do it? Or is it something more that you, you back yourself in, in a scenario out there on the field without needing, the I guess, the coach's reassurance? Yeah, no, it's an, it's an interesting one, Whitey. Obviously, um, yeah, Buck and Roz have absolutely supported me to bat the way I wanted to bat. And then I think at the end of the day, it comes down to you yourself and taking ownership of your own game and how you actually want to play. At the end of the day, you're the one out in the middle. And I think for me, it was probably in game five. I think I had a 17-ball duck at the MCG and the wicket was doing everything. And I was probably trying to bat what I thought was really properly. Um, but at the end of the day, putting no pressure back on the bowler and just sort of feeling like a little bit of a sitting duck. And I think at six or seven, when I'm coming in, it is looking to try and get the game moving forward. And I, yeah. Went into that week at South Australia at Adelaide Oval with a mindset to be nice and positive, and it was yeah, it was just fortunate that it came off um, that day, and that's really freed me up um, mentally to, and given me a good clarity about how I want to bat. And it worked uh, that day, and it worked again for you uh, yesterday. So before we talk about tomorrow and uh, and the one day cup match, the Marsh Cup match against South Australia, a couple of questions still from the junction. Just the continual improvement of Fergus O'Neill. It's now I think it's. In the last four innings, three times he's taken five wickets, albeit all against South Australia. But his constant improvement as a cricketer. Yeah, he's absolutely outstanding for us. I mean, I think the development that he's showed the last few years, his his length control, um, I think probably what goes a little bit unnoticed, which I see from behind the stunts with a pretty good view, is how much bounce he can get for someone who will self joke that he doesn't have much airspeed but um, that's sort of irrelevant for him he has such a good length he gets such a good bounce and as everyone's seen he's got such good skill with the seam and swing so um, on the wickets we're playing right at the moment he's just asking so many questions of the batter at the moment and yeah eventually over time through his spell we're just seeing the rewards come and even the five it was great this week but I think what he did on that first day as well to bowl 20 overs for 21 runs on a fast outfield at the junction um, yeah he's a testament to how well he's bowling. Yeah, that, that was remarkable in the first inning. So at one point he had 15 overs, 11 maidens, one for six. That's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of junior cricket sort of figures. Uh, and then Todd Murphy, 
you know, he's had his sort of injury niggles, injury issues through the first half of the Shield season. But the way that he was able to, uh, I think, get back to his best in that second innings, the, the energy was there. There was the real sort of uh, the revolutions on the ball. There was a good drift. It seemed that he was back to his best. Yeah, again, Toddy, Toddy bowled beautifully this week. And I think I think we have to be realistic with Toddy. Like, obviously, seeing him get Virat Kohli out was so exciting in India and seeing him take the six and seven fers was um, yeah, it was awesome seeing him do that in those conditions. But I think some of the wickets we're playing on at the moment, his role isn't going to be getting six and seven fers. It's going to be the two for 50s, two for 70s off 30 overs and really building pressure for the other person. And then hopefully in the second innings, he can get some conditions that work in his favour, which was exactly the case this week. And I think to see Lehman, to see him push one through Lehman with his natural variation and then spin one um, back through Scott, two really important wickets for us, just yeah, showed how well he was bowling us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sam, I, I want to ask you about the, the the mental side of the game. Clearly, you know you've had to deal with some uh, challenges that that not every athlete deals with. But I guess professional sport is uh, is a is a mental challenge at the best of times. But for you, how how difficult has it been at different stages, and how much work do you do on just sort of living in the moment and focusing on what's ahead versus what has happened? Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, Josh. I wouldn't even yeah. It's not only just as a cricketer. I think it's as you would have witnessed in the AFL, mate, and for everyone playing any sort of sport, um, yeah, I think as you grow older, you realise how much of a mental game it really is. And, yeah, for me, I'm just trying to enjoy every single game of cricket I'm playing, and that was why, yeah, I was pretty disappointed with the little setback a few weeks ago. But then on the flip side, I just saw it as an exciting opportunity to try and get back playing as quickly as possible. And, yeah, I was desperate to be... I told my concussion expert that I had to be ready by the 3rd of Feb no matter what. (laughs) Thankfully, she put together a schedule for me that got me... Got me right and ready to play this week, which I was, um, yeah, really grateful for. And I was just keen to get back out there and, and playing cricket. And, yeah, I think with the Vicks at the moment, we've got such a great group that's great to be a part of. Um, and, yeah, no doubt winning also helps and makes it fun as well. So, yeah, we've got something really exciting games coming up. But, um, yeah, I definitely try and stay in the moment as much as as much as you can. Uh, but, yeah, I'm also... I'm also a sportsman who wants to win, so I am looking ahead, going, there's a few exciting games that if we can win, I'd love to be a part of another Shield final and, yeah, try and do it, go one better than we have the last couple of years. Uh, so, without harping on the on the fact, do you think but perhaps in, in a weird way it's 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 helped you it's a little bit because probably has, has given that, that perspective that, you know, I'm not guaranteed the next game of cricket. I'm not just guaranteed to play for another 5, 10, 12, 14 years and, and it can be taken away. So, maybe... You know, maybe you more so than the guy sitting to your left and right understand that, you know, I need to live in the moment and and really make the most of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Josh. I mean, yeah, sport and professional sport, such a competitive environment. I mean, every game that you're lucky enough to play, um, yeah, whether it be with the Stars or Victoria at the moment or my club side, Melbourne, um, yeah. I think I've got to the age now where uh, I've played enough cricket and I've had enough experiences that I sort of know how I want to play. And now, yeah, the more games that I can we keep and bat in and, yeah, be part of Victorian and the Melbourne Stars cricket moving forward, I'll be, yeah, extremely looking forward to. It, it doesn't sound, Sammy, that it did dent your confidence. I think we were all really concerned when we heard what happened and the, the nature of having to um, to head off from training in an ambulance, that we were very, very concerned. But for you, it, it seems like that you've bounced back really strongly mentally as much as physically. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, Whitey. None of them have really, as, as unfortunate as they've been, uh, the one thing that has stayed constant is my will to want to play cricket and get back as quickly as possible. And 
yeah, with them being such freak accidents, none of them have really derailed the actual skill component of how cricket's played for me. So um, each time it's just been getting a little schedule together and getting the help I can. And yeah, as I said before, just trying to get back out there as, as quickly as possible. And yeah, the Melbourne Stars and Cricket Victoria and all the help I had the last few weeks was was fantastic from everyone. And um, yeah, I was really grateful for that. And I think, yeah, this week just capped it off really to get out there back at the junction and win a game of cricket for Victoria. Um, yeah, it was a nice little reward. You and your good mate, Will Pukowski, have had similar issues. Is it something that you can help each other with or maybe you, you even help Will with in, in coming back? Yeah, a little bit, Whitey. I mean, each sort of circumstance is different and unique in its own right. So I think for both of us, we've just tried to make sure each other's doing as well as they can mentally. And then, yeah, as you, as we touched on before, um, yeah, just encouraging each other to that it's going to be okay. We're going to get through the little few weeks that we might be facing. And, yeah, most importantly, just get back out on the cricket field as quickly as possible. Um, and, yeah, for me, that's keeping and batting. And for Will, that's up at the top of, top of the order making runs, which hopefully in the next few weeks we should see him back out there doing. Now, I was down at training this morning and you, I mean, you've just finished a four-day game with a red ball and you're out there all training with a white ball to play tomorrow. Does much change? Uh, probably not so much for you than maybe for others, but <laughs> ha, what does change? And, and if anything, what, what changes when it comes to going from that red ball to a white ball a couple of days later? Yeah, not much for me, Whitey, to be honest. <laughs> uh, maybe I'd tone it down a little bit for one day cricket. <laughs> look for some more singles. Um, no, not really. I think if you look at our batting group tomorrow, Maddinson, Harris, Hanscom, there's just so many games of experience in our group, which, I, which is a big part of the reason I think we're going so well in white ball cricket. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the boys have played enough cricket now that they know how they're playing. And then same with the bowlers. I mean, you sub out bowling for someone like Peter Siddle to come in tomorrow who and him with Ferg. They've just got such great length control and I think they're just going to try and do the same thing. So we've got a pretty experienced squad, which is good. And yeah, it's sort of more so get what you need this morning and rest up this afternoon so we're ready to go tomorrow. I'm a fair bit older than you, Sam, unfortunately for me. Uh, <laughs> who who was um, who were the uh, one or two players that you uh, just absolutely locked in on when you were a young fella, just coming through the ranks. I'm, I'm talking internationally as well. Was there? Was there? I think we've all always got that one player from a different country who we absolutely admire and love to watch. Was there one for you? Yeah, there was probably two for me, or probably two or three. Just to be honest, from Australia, I always loved Mark Hussey and Adam Gilchrist. Funny enough, both being left-handers and me being right, but yeah. I not mostly just enjoyed the way they played, and then. Probably internationally was AB Devers. I just love how he could play all three formats and do them so success to, successfully and adapt. I remember the first time I got to keep him at the Gabba, I was kind of secretly hoping he batted for a bit so I could watch him. I think we bowled him second ball. So, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it was cool to play against him. And yeah, I think when Gilly made that 100 at the Wacker as a young keeper batsman, I think all of us were going down to the nets and trying to slog our dads or siblings or teammates as far as we could after he hit Monty for 26. So um, yeah, there are probably a few that encouraged me as a young kid to want to play professional cricket as well as I could. Well, it's just so great to have you back, Sammy, playing as well as you did, as I said, in the in both innings against South Australia. You love playing against uh, the Redbacks, and hopefully there's more of the same tomorrow with Victoria taking on South Australia at the Junction Oval. It's a day game, a one-day game, the Marsh Cup. Uh, head down to Junction if you've got some time because you'll get to see some great cricket. Sam, thanks for your time. Good luck tomorrow. 
Cheers, Josh. Cheers, Whitey. Thank you. Sam Harper yeah. joining us there live on Sports Day on SEN on this Wednesday night. So, yes, uh, I think it's a 10 o'clock start tomorrow, um, I think. I hope, <laughs> because I'm meant to be calling it <laughs> Victorian South Australia tomorrow at the junction. And you can catch uh, all the action on uh, cricket.com.au and also through KO as well. We are off to a break. Um, we'll try and get some more calls. There's text messages that keep flooding in on this uh, Fab Four. The temper text machine is on fire. We'll do that next. Now on Sports Day, a sports update for Tyre Power, Australia's biggest independent tyre retailer. Yes, a sports update. South Africa 5 for 185 as they continue to play in the rain at North Sydney Oval. It is quite remarkable uh, watching them uh, try and uh, hold the ball at the moment. So Cap is still there for South Africa on 67. Uh, Ricky Ponding says, and we'll talk to uh, Dan Bredick about all things cricket shortly, that Jake Fraser-McGurk needs to be fast-tracked into the uh, test team. What were your thoughts well, when you heard that, Josh, after what well, he did last night? Yeah, well, I think I think you see the odd talent come through and you think, well, uh, you don't need to pigeonhole that talent to, you know, one format or one style of play, whatever the given sport. And I think he fits that mould from, from what I've seen. He's a, uh, a pure ball striker. He looks like he's got incredible hand-eye um, he just looks like he understands the game and the game comes quite easily to him. So most probably in that David Warner mould of of being able to just um, take a game away from the opposition. And Whitey, as you know, more so than I, being able to take a test match away from an opposition in an hour and a half's batting has become more and more popular in the longer format of the game. Yeah, I think, and Sam Harper talked about that before, about you know making sure that they're moving the game forward. I mean, Jake Fraser-McGurk has 13 first-class matches to his name with an average of 22. So he's probably got a bit <laughs> a bit of a way to go. But there's this whole thing about role players now in cricket. This is the modern thing. Averages don't seem to matter. It's about can you play a specific role for the yep. team. Maybe he yep. can. Mm. Ricky Ponting would know more than us. Hey, we're going to take an early break here because we want to spend some time talking to Dan Brady because there's so many cricket issues going on. So we'll do that next on Sports Day on this Wednesday night. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Sports Day. Our news headlines tonight have been brought to you by the Spirit of Tasmania. Unwind as you wander and set sail with Spirit of Tasmania for $69. Conditions apply. It's time to talk a little bit more cricket now with the age chief cricket writer, Daniel Bredick, who joins us on Sports Day. Dan, welcome. Good to be with you guys. Now, there's been a bit of news around, um, obviously regarding largely Ricky Ponting, not just where he's actually going to coach uh, during our winter, but also some of the comments he made about Jake Fraser-McGurk. But just I'm interested in your overall thoughts of of the the Canberra disaster, I guess, and and the three one-day internationals between Australia and the West Indies. What was your overall take? Oh, look, I think what you saw there was the difference between, uh, say, the West Indies test squad and the test program. Uh, there's clearly been a lot of effort put in there over the last couple of years to try to build something more cohesive and... Uh, you know, having a leader like Craig Brathwaite is quite important to that. Um, and then, of course, uh, the advent of Shamar Joseph um, as a real kind of shooting star um, made a bit of a difference there. Whereas, yeah, the West Indies white ball program, uh, you know, on the face of it, it's a stronger team in the sense that they've got a few more of their um, 
white ball specialists and, um, you know, T20 merchants involved. But the team itself doesn't feel quite as cohesive. And that obviously was reflected in the fact that they didn't qualify for the 50 over World Cup in India late last year. And so uh, the expectation now that as, you know, Western East kind of have three fairly distinctly different teams across formats is that the T20 side will probably perform a little bit better than the ODI team. But, um, yeah, whether they can cause a surprise as, uh, as happened in the Gabba Test match remains to be seen. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to talk about because we, I think we were all seduced and by what the West Indies did in the Test Series and we're all really excited and sort of like potentially a snapshot, snapshot to the future. And then we saw what we saw in the one days. But my observation would be that much like Australia looking for a World Cup in four years, there was a, a real sort of youth policy and, 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 and it was a very inexperienced West Indies team. So I don't think we should get too concerned because, as you said, we'll see some good players that we all know in the T20s. It's just a reality of a, of a very young and inexperienced team. Am I being too kind to the West Indies or do you think that's fair? No, I think that I think that's fair. And of course, the other thing is that we are at the beginning of a new cycle that runs four years basically yeah, to the yeah. next World Cup, and uh, it is it's definitely an issue for cricket uh, across the board that you've now got a lot of bilateral uh, limited overs series. That um, yes, there is a ODI qualification league for the World Cup, and that's um, obviously critical to for teams to qualify in those spots and to West Indies' detriment. They didn't qualify for the World Cup last year. But um, communicating that across the board so that people are engaged with it, players want to play in it, um, spectators come and watch it, um, TV viewers tune into it. Uh, yeah, it, it looks at the moment like um, that's not really a battle that's being, that's being won. Uh, and so you increasingly hear from administrators that, well, bilateral ODIs in between World Cups are perhaps the format that we could do with a bit less of if we're going to make room for other things. Dan, is, is, all we're hearing at the moment, I guess, are the, the issues and the problems. Not a lot of solution, uh, not a lot of ideas on, on how to, um, I guess, implement change or positive change toward, I guess, all forms of of, of the game, also the, the test arena and the... And the fifty over version. Have you got any ideas? Is there an you know an equalization measure that you can you could potentially put in place to to see some of not surplus money that some of the money that uh, the strong nations have got that could help uh, facilitate some of the better players playing for these other nations? Is there something along those lines that you could come up with? Because as I said, you know all I'm hearing at the moment is is or are the issues with the game, not necessarily the solutions to fix some of the issues. Yeah, there's a there's a few ideas that are being um, tossed around, and, and and lots have been discussed over the past uh, the past ten years or, or so. Um, one of those uh, that Ricky Ponting brought up again today when we spoke to him was uh, the idea of a little bit of regulation in terms of capping the number of T20 franchise leagues that a player can play in across the year, so they can play in three leagues, uh, which means that if they max out on the number of leagues they're playing in, there's still some room in the calendar for them to represent their country. So that's something that can be done on the regulatory side. On the funding side, there's there's two main pots of money in, in international cricket. There's that from bilateral series, which is, you know, the amount of money that, uh, say, in Australia, 
Foxtel and Seven and also overseas broadcasters like Star in India pay to broadcast the um, series that are being played in Australia. So the, you know, the test series we just had or the India series next summer or the Ashes after that. And then the other part of money, which is, um, you know, uh, discussed at the at the ICC um, global table is the amount of money that is paid by broadcasters for World Cups. So the um, uh, that pot of money is quite a lot in this cycle. It's about four billion US. Um, so then it's a question of how much or how that money is distributed. At the moment, according to the model that was put in place last year. India gets 37% of that and everyone else gets a much smaller percentage irrespective of sort of where they're at in terms of um, their finances and how much money they can draw in from bilateral series. And one of the problems that cricket has and one of the things that needs to be addressed is trying to balance out those two pots of money because India, Australia and England get a lot of money from bilateral tours. No other countries get much money from those tours. Uh, but the World Cup rights, obviously, all countries contribute to that because broadcasters are paying for a global event. So there's lots of discussion about whether that money can be redistributed a little bit more equitably so that more countries can afford to pay their players to play international cricket. Sticking sticking with Ricky Ponting, he's um, still one of the... The, uh, the 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 giants of, of cricket, isn't he? He's um, sneaking across to, to coach the Washington Freedom. I must admit, I'm not a I'm not locked in on the cricket like you and Whitey are, but I'm not familiar with the Washington Freedom. Can 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 someone like Ricky League, the Major League Cricket, can 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 Ricky Ponting uh, make them? Uh, I guess known around the world. He definitely helps. He definitely adds. Uh, credibility to any competition that he's a part of. Um, but I think the main uh, point of uh, starting up a T20 league in the USA and of more cricket being played there, there are going to be some matches in the in the T20 World Cup this year played in the USA, including India v. Pakistan um, in, uh, in New York. Uh, and there's also going to be cricket in the Olympics for the first time um, in Los Angeles in 2028. All of that is happening because USA is actually one of the biggest markets for cricket in the world outside of Australia, England and India, because there is, for one thing, a huge Indian expat population that's cricket obsessed in the USA. And so that is what is being attempted to be tapped into through this league. And its first year last year, it was a success commercially. It was a success in the sense that the players who played enjoyed playing in it. And there's also a tie-in for a couple of the clubs. So Cricket New South Wales is tied into the Washington Freedom. So it was uh, essentially um, Michael Klinger, who runs the T20 program for Cricket New South Wales, who recruited Ricky Ponting to be their new coach. And similarly, Cricket Victoria has a tie-in with um, the San Francisco Unicorns. So there are a couple of um, cross-currents, you might say, where um, Australian cricket is to some degree invested in the evolution of, of that league. And of course... It's played in around July, which is no threat to the Australian season. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of impetus for Australian players to take part in it. And it does seem, Dan, that there are going to be a number of Australians, Australia's biggest stars playing this year in uh, Major League Cricket. And obviously there's the World Cup, T20 World Cup in America and the West Indies as well. 
the feeling is if you talk to players and coaches that were there last year, they feel it could potentially be the the second biggest competition, T20 competition behind the IPL within three or five years. And a lot of these people that were saying that were, were very cynical of it uh, 12 months ago. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Um, I think it's got, um, uh, yeah, it, it's got legs in the sense of, like I said before, the, the, the I suppose you'd say the, the market potential for it in a commercial sense. Um, the other thing that I think is a huge, um, hugely attractive thing as far as you know players and support staff and, and I guess all the operational people that put together a cricket, cricket tournament is the novelty of playing cricket in the USA like it, it's always been I guess the kind of um, you know it's like the the high speed rail dream of, of world cricket to get cricket up and going in the United States and the fact that this is now actually happening and it's happening in places where um, people want to go and visit um, and might even want to go and visit to, you know, have a holiday and, and play some golf if we're talking about cricketers. Obviously, they love their golf. Um, <laughs> all of that, I think, contributes to the attractiveness on, of the package and uh, why, you know, um, Australian players who may have just played in the T20 World Cup in the Caribbean and the USA might want to stay on for another three weeks. Yeah, exactly right. So do you know where Glenn Maxwell is going to play in the Major League Cricket? That's a very good question. Um, why do you might know more than me there? Well, I mean, you would think that he would be aligned to the Unicorns being the Cricket Victoria team. I'm not sure that's the case, though. So, I wonder Well, what... one of the things that I can say that was very interesting talking to uh, talking to Ricky Ponting earlier today was I basically asked him, well, given that uh, you are a coach with the Delhi Capitals and the Delhi Capitals also have an investment in another team in Major League, cricket yes um were they okay with you coaching the washington freedom yeah. who have a different ownership model and he said well yeah i they were fine with it but that was the first phone call i made after i got approached is this, <laughs> is this okay and, and i think that's a that's a bit of an insight for you into um some of the conversations that are be, going to be going on whether it be with um coaching staff players anyone really who is already involved with an ipl team it's like well I might want to play in this league, but it depends on what um, what my uh, what what the owners of the IPL franchise I'm involved in want me to do, or or, or how they want me to uh, to map out my year. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a complicated picture. It very much so is. Uh, Dan, uh, Whitey and I were speaking the other day. I'm going to say uh, Cam Green's uh, Whitey. You might be able to help me. Miraculous catch in that left hand was in the second. It was uh, yep. ODI. Uh, whichever match it was, you shouldn't forget about it. Is, have you seen? Have you seen many or any other guys that have played the game at his size who can who can who can catch the ball and move like he can? Well, I'd, I'd say uh, Josh a little bit like in in the AFL, the the agile big man is the is the is the holy grail as far as uh, as as fielding and, and and catching is concerned in in cricket. To have someone with his uh, his, his reach, his wingspan, but also his reactions. Um, you know, there are there are catches that he's taken. Um, you know, that one um, uh, that one was in a, you know uh, in a, in front of the wicket kind of position. Um, whereas in Test cricket, you know, in the in the gully in particular, um, you know, he's got to be able to have such great eye to to react as quickly as as he can to uh, use that full wingspan um, when the ball's traveling at pace and um, yeah it's uh, it's been one of the 
the, the great things about watching Test cricket uh, in Australia in the last couple of years is um, not only his, his catching the quality of it, but also um, how genuinely excited he is if he takes a good one. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, I'd say that and Scott Boland have probably been two of the great sort of uh, crowd-friendly um, recurring uh, things about Australian cricket the last two or three years. Yep. Now, before we let you go, and we appreciate your time, Dan, we are talking to Dan Bradig, who is the chief cricket writer for The Age. Um, Mike Hussey and Lynn Larson and the Australian Cricket Awards last week, why weren't they mentioned in the Hall of, in the Hall of Fame section? Yeah, it was a, it, it, it was a really good uh, window into the fact that the Australian Cricketers Awards, Australian Cricket Awards or the... Um, uh, Alan Border and Bidalinda Clark Awards, um, that the format has changed a lot over the past 23, 24 years. The first time they were, um, or the Alan Border Medal was awarded was in um, early 2000. And it tells you that cricket is so much more complex than the footy codes in terms of, well, how are you going to have an awards night if you're trying to encompass everything? Yes. And like like the original, you know, the early editions of the Allen Border Medal Night was styled as closely as possible to the Brownlow Medal. You know, they had a count. It was it was much more that kind of that kind of thing with a couple of little um, uh, uh, a couple of little sidelights in terms of um, you know inductions to the Hall of Fame and a little changes of pace like that. In this case. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, trying to make it as as good a kind of broadcast production as it can be, make it engaging for, for a television audience. And uh, so, yeah, not having Hall of Fame induction speeches on the night, the, the kind of uh, counterbalance to that was the idea that, well, we're going to make a bigger deal about that at the Boxing Day test in the case of Mike Hussey or the Brisbane test in the case of Lynn Larson. Uh, but I think what was missed there was the fact that in the room on the night, obviously, it's an audience of cricketers past and present who would like to hear yeah. some insight from the careers of one of their heroes or one of their peers. And um, I think that's something that uh, probably needs a little bit of a, of a rethink for, um, for next year, whether that means, you know, full scale kind of speeches or interviews again, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a case where, um, you know, the, the broadcast audience reach, I suppose, for a Hall of Fame inductee is not the same thing as um, them being recognised in, yeah, a, a room full of cricketers. Yeah, and look, I, my personal view is the Hall of Fame section is the probably the best part of the night. Um, they have tried to make it a pacier, sort of slicker package, getting through it a lot quicker, but I think they've missed a trick there. I reckon that's uh, one of the best parts. Anyway, that's just my view. Dan, thanks very much for your time tonight on Sports Day. Really appreciate it. We'll catch you again soon. All good, guys. Dan Bradig, the age chief cricket writer. This is Sports Day for Kia. Epic has arrived. The all-electric seven-seat Kia EV9. And Macca's, the new McCrispy Bacon Deluxe, is back at Macca's. And, of course, you can give us a call on the Harcourts open line. For all things real estate, speak to Harcourts. KGO TV sportscaster Larry Beal. He'll join us next from Las Vegas. Welcome back to Sports Day for Nutrien Ag Solutions. Going further for Australian farmers, find your local branch at nutrien.com.au. We're going to continue our build-up to the Super Bowl now on Sports Day and get the San Francisco 49ers slant on things 
And we're lucky enough to be joined uh, from Las Vegas at a party, I think a Super Bowl party, by KGO TV sportscaster Larry Beal. Larry, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Uh, just as a, as a disclaimer going in, I'm three drinks in, so I may not be responsible for everything I say in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's it like in Vegas? Well, Vegas is nuts to begin with, and, you know, you add the Super Bowl on top of it, and it's, uh, it's quite the experience. It's very hectic. Do you, do but fun, but fun. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely, it's always fun in Vegas. Do Do you think the? I know it's early. I know it's early days, but do you think it's going to be a successful Super Bowl? Just with the the vibe you're getting at this point, still, you know, quite a few days out from the big day. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, Vegas has a history of hosting big boxing events, and now you've got the Golden Knights here. Uh, the Raiders, Allegiant Stadium is is gorgeous. It should be for $2 billion, by the way. <laughs> uh, and, they just, and they just had F1 here uh, late last year. So I, I think F1 was almost like uh, just the, the dry run for the Super Bowl because you have like 5,000 media members. Quite honestly, there's, there's way too much media here. There's, <laughs> there's way too many of us uh, for, for what is required. But, you know, Vegas knows how to, how to throw a good party, so – uh, hopefully the game will be good. And uh, the 49ers, you know, if they look like they did against the Packers and the Lions in the playoffs, uh, this could be pretty ugly. So what do you think is going to happen? Because San Francisco had to work awfully hard just to get to the Super Bowl when they're expected to win fairly comfortably. And then, you know, obviously it's a rematch of the 2020 Super Bowl with the Chiefs. Is who do you think is is going to go into the game as favorite? Well, I was shocked when uh, the line came out on the Sunday of the championship games, and the Niners were immediately favored by two and a half points. And I thought that was two and a half was with my pay off the mortgage bet. Uh, if it's Patrick Mahomes, two and a half points? Are you kidding me? Uh, but the line quickly shifted. And now it's the Niners are still favored by one, which I really don't understand. But, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Their defense, I, I've talked to a number of their defensive players, Fred Warner and, uh, you know, Eric Armstead, a bunch of those guys. Like, what happened? Like, they're, especially their run defense was so good in late November and early December. And they've just been getting gashed since then. And, I think they're as puzzled as I am, to be quite honest. They're going to have to change what they're doing, you know, scheme-wise. Otherwise, if they just sit back in a, in a zone, two-deep zone, Patrick Mahomes is going to carve them up like a, like a turkey. So, uh, you know, really some pressure on, on defensive coordinator Steve Wilk to figure out a strategy that can both contain Mahomes but also Isaiah Pacheco. Because if you looked at the, the tape from the Lions game, I mean, running backs, would, they would go run five yards before anybody even touched them. That is unacceptable. And to have a, have a lack of effort, like the coaches are calling out some of the players. If you look at the tape, and I, I rewatched the, the tape twice, and I'm like, run! Run to the ball! Like, what, what are we doing? It's the playoffs. Like, it's the most important games of your life, these last two games. How could you not, like, not be into it? 
I don't get it. But that's where we are. They made it here. They survived. But they're going to need to really step up their game against the Chiefs. So notwithstanding what you've just said, the way that they finished off the game last week, do you think that that will give them some genuine momentum going into the Super Bowl? I know they feel that way. Uh, to a man, they actually feel that way because they're like, look, we know the first half was a disaster against the Lions, but the second half we tightened it up and we made enough plays. They were fortunate that the Lions gambled on fourth down a couple of times. I would have kicked the field goal, take the points, but it worked out the way it did. They survived and advanced. And so they think they have a good plan going into this game. For me, I, and as much as we talk about Niner defense, they have to be able to run the ball against Kansas City. If they can run the ball, control the clock, keep Mahomes on the sideline as much as possible, to me, that's the recipe for success against the Chiefs. I want to broaden out the discussion just a little bit, Larry, and, and just about San Francisco, the, the city and, and the team, that the 49ers. Um, obviously, in recent times, quite successful getting through to four of the last five playoffs. But even before then, there hadn't been a lot of success, the, the move away from Candlestick Park. I'm just interested in the, the city of San Francisco and how much they get behind the, the 49ers, who historically have been such a, a strong team. Well, you know, the fans are called the faithful, and we were at um, what they call, you know, opening night at the Super Bowl last night. They were so loud in the stadium. It was crazy. I mean, you could hear them chanting, Debo, Debo, Ayuk, Ayuk. I mean, it was, it was nuts. I mean, it was so much fun, and they're so into it that, I mean, the ticket prices, I don't know how anybody that's a normal human with a regular job can afford these prices. I mean, it started out like the average ticket price was somewhere around $8,000 per ticket. Yeah. I had a buddy of mine who called me up and said, hey, can you get me three? And I said, are you insane? That's $24,000. What's wrong with you? Uh, but he makes, he makes a lot of money. And uh, so he got, him, he got himself three tickets. So he'll be here. So does the the city? I mean, is it all dressed up in the in the red of of the Forty ers and gold, or is it? I mean, you know, we think of Boston as being such a big sporting city with, and they've had so much success, particularly through the Patriots. What's what's the city like? I know you're in Vegas and the team's in Vegas, but do they really get behind the Forty ers Oh, you mean in San Francisco? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the team plays in the team plays in Santa Clara, which is. 45 minutes south of, of San Francisco proper. So it's a little bit different than it was in the old candlestick days. But, you know, the, the fans are, are, are rabid for this team. And, they're, you know, when the team is going well, uh, people, people love it. And so uh, the fan base is extremely strong, extremely strong. It's going to be funny this week because both teams are wearing red. Yes. I mean, that's their, those are their colors. And so, you know, we, we see people walking down the street and you see the red and I immediately see 49ers, except wait, I'm going, wait a second. No, they're, they're, they're the Chiefs fans. Okay, all right. So to sort this out, on game day, the Niners are going to wear white and the Chiefs are going to wear red. So uh, it'll be easier to figure out that. Yes. Yeah, so because here in Australia, the 49ers would be one of the most popular teams. And I think that's a lot largely due to the success, you know, many years ago from Joe Montana and then there was Steve Young as well. And, 
you know, you were such a, a powerhouse during that time. But it's been a while um, since you've had Super Bowl success. Is this the year? Because you've got years. you've got so close. Yeah, 29 years. That's yeah. why I think there's a lot of pressure on Kyle Shanahan. You know, if you remember a few years ago, now the Chiefs have been in the Super Bowl three of the last four years. Yeah. But before that, Andy Reid, you know, his legacy was as the Eagles coach who couldn't quite get it done. Yep. And then he went to Kansas City and finally won. And now everybody just says Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, obviously. For Kyle, you know, you know they've been to the championship game a number of times. He, he lost as the offensive coordinator with the Falcons when they were up on Tom Brady, 28-3. They lost when they were up on Mahomes by 10 with seven minutes left in the, in the fourth quarter four years ago. To me, that's a lot of pressure on him to deliver the Lombardi trophy. Like getting close every year, that's, that's not good enough. Yeah. And everybody knows that. So, you know, how everybody deals with that pressure – is different, but clearly, if one guy is in more of a must-win situation, I think it's Kyle Shanahan. And, and it's tough on him, isn't it? Because I tend to agree with you. I mean, he is 8-3 in playoffs, so he's got a good winning percentage in playoffs. But it is, as you said, a repeat of, of 2020 where where the 49ers had such that significant lead in the last quarter. Is that it? Would that play on the mind of the of the players and the coaches, or is it more a, a media or supporter-driven thing from the outside? I think it's more of a media thing. There's only 10 players that are holdovers from that team four years ago. And like, so Debo Samuel was on the team. He was a rookie. Nick Bosa was on the team. He was a rookie. Like, they didn't even know what was going on. Uh, you know, and, and so now four years later, they're much more developed as players. Uh, the coaching staff, there's so many changes in the staff because – so many people have gotten hired off of Kyle's staff. But if you just, like, walk close next to Kyle Shanahan, somebody's going to offer you a head coaching job. So, like, that's yeah. So it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, deserved as well because, you know, you look at what D'Amico Ryan did this past season in Houston. Uh, it hasn't gone as well for Robert Sala with the Jets. Uh, but they seem to be systemically dysfunctional. Uh, in any case, I, I don't think, you know, there's – that there's a, like a, going to be like a Super Bowl hangover from four years ago. They just don't have enough. Brock Purdy, like <laughs> Brock Purdy was at Iowa State. So, like, you know, it's not going to – but the question is how does he react when it's the biggest game of his life and he's never been on this type of a stage before? Because we've seen some cringeworthy passes in the last two postseason games from Purdy. He's gotten away with them. But, uh, you know, at, at a certain point that catches up with you. Tell us a bit about Brock Purdy. He's only 24 years of age. As he said, he's, he doesn't have a lot of experience on, on the big stage, but he has got the 49ers as quarterback to the Super Bowl. What's he like as a person? Is he someone that you think can handle the pressure? Because there has been so much of a spotlight on him, more on what he hasn't done as opposed to what he has done. Well, for whatever reason, there seems to be a lot of, Brock Purdy slander that's gone on in the national media uh, here in the States. I don't understand it. I just assume that it's the result of him being the last pick in the draft in 62. And so people assume, well, that guy can't play. Plus also he's not physically imposing. Like if you stand next to Josh Allen, he's 6'5", 245 pounds. And like, okay, I get it. But Brock Purdy looks like 
uh, you know, he could be, I don't know, like the, the cashier at J.C. Penney's or something. <laughs> I like, you know, I, 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 I don't know. But he looks like an ordinary dude. He looks like just an ordinary person. Um, so I, I think people tend to criticize him way more than is justified, given he's – if you look at the statistics, like if you took his face off the page and just put his numbers up there, you would think they were Mahomes' numbers. Yep. They're his numbers. Yeah. And, and so he doesn't get credit for that. He will get credit if uh, – you know, if they can pull this thing out on Sunday. And maybe he's got nothing to lose. Maybe he's on bonus time and, and, and that might work in his favour. Larry, how many Super Bowls have you been to? You used to be uh, at ESPN uh, Sports Centre as an anchor, and as you said, now you're working for KGO TV. How long have you been following the 49ers but also going to Super Bowls? Oh, this is my sixth Super Bowl. So I've uh, been to a bunch. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, the events just seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we'll see. We'll see if what, you know, I actually was on TV for the last Niners victory parade in 1989. Wow. And we'll see if we have another one, uh, you know, coming up in a week or so. But I got to ask you a question because my daughters both went to uh, study abroad programs in Australia. And I love Australia. Yeah. Sydney is tremendous. I could, I'm originally from Hawaii. I could move to Sydney. I could move to Sydney tomorrow and just love it. Manly, Manly Beach, oh, my God. Anyway. These are great places, uh, Larry, but they're not as good as Melbourne. Oh. Whoa, all right. Okay. <laughs> uh, we, we may have our first disagreement here. But and they're different. They're just such a thing. It's like San Francisco and L.A. Correct. Where people like, uh, right? So, um, I'm heading outside, so there's another band here. If it gets really loud, uh, I apologize. But uh, in any case, um, I just love I love Australia. The people are great. The Gold Coast is great. My daughters had fantastic experiences in their study abroad programs, and I, I just uh, I just I just love it there. And uh, I can't wait to come back because it's so spectacular. Yeah, it's, uh, you're really fortunate. You're really fortunate. Now, are you in Sydney? Or are you in, in – actually, you know, my daughter, she trained me to say it's that it's not Melbourne, it's Melbourne. Very good. So I, I'm, try, I'm trying to be authentic. I'm that's very authentic. good. No, Larry, that's very good. Yes, definitely uh, definitely in Melbourne. So we're probably – we're Boston and San Francisco, Sydney. That's how I would sort of sort of make the comparison okay. between the this. two of them. Yep. This, this might be the most important question I ask you. Yeah. Tim Tams or Lamington? Well, I'll eat both um, without hesitation. But I, Lamington, look, you're getting into really te- high technical areas here. But Tim Tam is just that. that <laughs> Tim Tam's fantastic. Lamington that must have the jam in the middle of the Lamington for it to be a proper Lamington. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Well, you know what? I mean, that's why I ask an expert. Well, there you anything. go, a connoisseur. A con- I'm a I'm a Lamington's guy myself, so yeah. uh, I've been mocked. I've been mocked for that unfairly, um, yeah. and so I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that, that we're at least kind of on the same page on this. Yeah, no, I like uh, it. Also, yep. Also, you're a day ahead of us. Yes. So, assuming that like the future is better than the past, what's tomorrow like? That's it a, better. Tomorrow was a good day. That was a good day. It was okay. the weather was good. Um, good things happened. Um, no, you, you'll find that tomorrow's a good day. I, I, I hope so. I hope so. 
it's getting so loud here. I, I apologize because this is madness. There's all kinds of bands everywhere, and it's a gigantic party here in Las Vegas. Uh, I think it's the facility that they built for F1. So there's all these fancy cars around. There's a zillion people, and uh, it's very loud everywhere. So that- apologies to all of your listeners uh, that have to suffer through this. But uh, in any case, um, you know, I can't, I'm, you know, we're just excited to get to Sunday and kick the ball off and, and stop talking about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Larry, I'll let you go back inside. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on, uh, on SEN here on uh, Sports Day. Uh, enjoy the rest of the night. And more importantly, enjoy the football on Sunday. Thank you so much. Good night, mate. <laughs> So that was Larry Beale joining us there. Now, I did do that earlier on this afternoon because of the time difference and because Larry was, we were a bit worried he'd have too much to drink. We had to do it early enough that he made sense. So we did that uh, uh, sometime earlier before the show. So, Josh, just on that, especially Mm. the stuff around Brock Purdy and the pressure that he's under. You know, you've been involved in a, a professional sporting team where there is someone under enormous pressure, where they're questioning whether he's up to it, questioning whether he can cope with the pressure. When it's coming from outside the club, from the media or from social media or from talkback radio, these sorts of things, that does it seep in? Uh, well, it depends. It depends on whether it truly is only coming from outside the club. So um, because the people who watch the sport, know enough about it, particularly the NFL. The guys who analyze the NFL are spending Monday to Friday watching the game tape. Now, our AFL experts probably should do more of that. But over there, those guys are watching the tape as if they still coach or as if they still play. And so they're seeing and giving opinion, which is real and very, very accurate. Sometimes they like to you know, emphasize it and, and, and entertain and make it a little bit more theatrical. But I think there'd be players who are on the San Francisco 49ers roster who are thinking, if we get in the same situation as we did in 2020 and we're up by 10 points, but Patrick Mahomes is coming for us and Jimmy Garoppolo couldn't make the throws that Brock Purdy's going to have to make the throws, I, I've got no doubt there's players on the Niners and maybe even the coaches thinking, Geez, if we get in the same situation, I hope Brock Purdy can make him. I think he can. And he is cool, calm, and composed, and he's giving a great uh, account of himself. I thought he was absolutely amazing at media day. He was class personified. But does that mean you can stand back there when you're either down and you have to make the throw to give yourself a chance, or you have to stand back there and make the throw to stave off Patrick Mahomes? Whether you can do that or not, it's a different story. And to be honest, most of us, maybe him included, will only truly know when he either does or does not do it. Yeah, and that's what I sort of was alluding to when I was speaking to Larry is that he did so well in the second half when it looked like the 49ers were in all sorts of trouble. Now, he didn't throw the the magical pass or he didn't do amazing things statistically. But what he was able to do, I felt, was come under pressure. He he ran the ball when he needed to. He yep. got the first downs when he needed to. It didn't look to me that he panicked. So I was quite surprised that still there's this commentary around, you know, that he's, he's, he's not up to it when in a championship game with his team under pressure and behind, he found a way. And sometimes finding a way is better than just throwing the, the you know, the perfect pass. 
And I don't have the number, the stat in front of me, but Kyle Shanahan, the head coach, his teams, uh, when he's been the head coach, were were something putrid, like zip and 30 when trailing by double, I think it was double digits in the fourth quarter. So they were, they were, they were just, when his team, his teams were built to, to, to lead, to control the game and to dominate effectively. Now, they had never been able to overcome big deficits like Mahomes and Brady and the great quarterbacks do. Well, Brock Purdy has done that twice. Yeah. Lions got away from them big time, 14-0, 21-7, and he was able to, as you said, and this is this is his great strength. He's not flashy. He doesn't have a cannon for an arm, but he is inc- he is incredibly efficient. He is he is accurate. He makes great decisions. Uh he's unflappable. I I call him Whitey. I call him ever so sturdy Brock Purdy. <laughs> because he's real sturdy. He's yeah. he's 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 always uh, able to to make the right decision. Now a lot of the people and naysayers will say, you know, with Jared Goff when he was in in LA, oh, it was Sean McVay in his headset telling him what to do. Sean McVay ain't the one wearing the helmet, throwing the ball, making sure he's looking at his receivers when you've got three hundred pound uh, defensive linemen coming for you. And Brock Purdy's in the same situation. I, I would be, I'll be really surprised if he's the reason they don't win the game. Yeah, and I, I think what you said something before that really um, crystallized in my mind, and that is this whole thing about doubt, because there's two parts to it. There's, there's his own doubt, whether mm. it creeps in and whether he starts listening to the noise and starts questioning himself, and I'm sure he's got people with inside the, in, inside the organization that are making sure that he's as confident as he can be. But there's that other part is is his team are his teammates listening to the noise? So mm. are they going to have confidence in him when they need to? Because especially when it comes to the NFL, you need to have your your quarterback confident, but you also need to have your receivers confident that he's going to throw the ball where he needs to throw it. But also you, you need your defensive mechanisms in place as well to protect your quarterback. So you need to believe in the man. And if you're not believing don't worry about the quarterback himself, but if your teammates aren't believing, that's when it can all break down. And you can't you can't fake that stuff. No, as a teammate of as a teammate of someone else, you can't fake that. You can't you can't because you you it's so obvious to someone uh, when when you are faking it when you're not certain about someone. But I've seen you know, and this is the great thing about the NFL, we get amazing access, and I've seen. You know George Kittle go up to him and go up to others that that they believe in him more than they believed in Jimmy Garoppolo. Now Jimmy Garoppolo was always one play away from getting injured and not being seen again, but he was he wasn't a he didn't rally the troops like Peyton Manning yep. uh, did and like Tom Brady does. Now Purdy might not do that either, but they they certainly believe in him because of all the hysteria around him. Mr. Irrelevant, pick 262. He's played two seasons in the NFL. Last year, he went to the NFC Championship game. They probably win the game if he doesn't hurt his shoulder, his elbow, sorry. And this year, they're in the Super Bowl. What, what more do you want the young man to do? No, I, I, I agree with you. I think the uh, the whole commentary around it is is interesting. But it's, again, it's a little bit like, you know, there's two weeks to talk about it. So you tend yeah. to, you know, end up talking about all the things that you might not necessarily believe in, but it just keeps getting regurgitated. Anyway, this is uh, Sports Day for Kia. Epic has arrived. The all-electric seven-seat Kia EV9 and Macca's, the new McCrispy Bacon Deluxe, is now at Macca's. You can give us a call on the Harcourts open line for all things real estate. Speak to Harcourts. Now, up next on 1116 is the Macca's run with John Donohoe. 
or you can keep listening to us on the SEN app.